0: Snuff production. I was very sad and and I was desperately uh, worried about Tom. I thought that we had lost him, and I used to go searching for Tom because he used to be lost for four or five days. I, there came a point when I, I actually had to, deep down, I I kind of gave up on Tom. <laughs>
1: Tom's grandfather, Ian, is preparing for a major exhibition in Singapore. He's turning 80 and says he's doing his best work right now. And he's bringing it back to Asia after a kind of long exile from the place of his birth. He looks at Tom's experience through his art.
0: My work at the moment is about the the spaces, these negative spaces of uh, one's life. The empty spaces, which the Buddhists call clear light, luminosity. In other words... It's the white spaces that you leave, uh, that you don't touch. The darkest days, I I saw somebody, a beautiful young man who was completely lost. He had no direction. When I think back about myself, I had no direction. I had no one to tell me what to do, how to do it. Not so much how to do it, but, but just give me the confidence to be who I am and to understand who I am. And, and be proud of who I am. My father left when I was six.
2: I didn't hear from him in any way, shape or form until I was 17.
0: And uh, I started to travel as a singer. I traveled the world for 10 years with my second wife. We sang together. All the big hotels starting from Singapore and Indonesia, Bali, Malaysia, Pakistan, India, all over the Middle East, Africa.
2: And I remember when he turned back up. I was sitting in the house by myself. The phone rang, it was him. I then wrote about four step pages of stuff in 10 minutes. It was like a
0: wall collapsing. I believe that, that history does repeat itself. And I said, I had to talk to Rick, I said, look, history is repeating itself. I deserted you and you are deserting Tom. So please don't try not to do that. And Rick said, look, I, I will not allow Tom to destroy the rest of my family. You didn't want time to influence the other kids.
2: I, 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 You know, to be honest with you, I'm not taking a lot of guidance from father on this. He hasn't been in support. You know, I don't really give him a lot of time on that front. But you didn't? You never felt like
1: you abandoned Tom?
2: God, no. There were times when it was kind of like, you know, I walked away. I didn't abandon him. I always thought that Tom would get through it. I mean, maybe because I'd got through it. There was only one point I remember visualising myself standing over his grave.
3: Yeah, I was living with my dad at this stage, but not getting on well. We lived in the same house, but hardly spoke. I felt a great amount of anger at this stage. He came and lived with me. He had the room out the
2: back. I cooked him meals. He barely spoke to me. It was horrendous.
1: So how much did you know
2: what was going on? I I knew it all. You did? How did you know that? I'd search his room. I'd do whatever. I mean, I knew what was going on.
1: Did you know about the flats, for instance? He was going up there to the flats near
2: Parliament there? Uh, Eventually, because I had to go and settle his debts with his drug dealer. He's a very, very smart human being, and what concerned me was I felt he was almost being groomed and he was actively pursuing the career as a criminal mastermind.
1: Perth is the most isolated provincial capital in the world, and that means everything costs more, including ICE. The price is nearly double in Perth what it is on the
3: East Coast. 800, around $800 for a gram of meth. For a gram? For a gram, yeah. It's expense yeah. And how long does one gram last? Depends how big your appetite is. You could have one gram in one shot or it might last someone a couple of days.
1: By now, Tom was having to move a lot of
3: pot to finance
1: his ice habit
3: and he adopted the shifty persona of the drug dealer. It was just a sort of a game of tit for tat. I tried to set someone else up a few weeks earlier and rip them off for their money. Um, and they decided to get me back. So I was lured to this... Uh, I was lured to a park. I was 15 at the time. I arrived at the park. There were a few grown men waiting for me. The last thing I remembered was someone yelling, I'm picking up a brick, and then I was seeing stars. And the next thing I knew was out the front of the hospital, throwing up. My dad later told me that I'd been stripped of all my clothes, my, my jaw had been broken and my pushbike had been ridden over my, over the top of my face and, and left tyre tracks over the top of my face. But this was, it wasn't out of the ordinary for this this sort of world. And it didn't it didn't dissuade you from continuing? In all honesty, it probably strengthened my resolve to get smarter uh, about what I was doing. I was quite new to the game at this stage, so it was a tough lesson that I learnt. There are rules that you had to abide by. It just felt like life was a game, you know, it was constant... It wasn't so much the drugs that I found myself addicted to. It was the it was thrill of actually going out and, and trying to hustle up enough cash to be able to go and get them and then find them. That was the real fun, you know. Yeah, that's right. You, get, you know, you find the treasure and it's like, what do you do now? What's next? Yeah, yeah. Well, particularly with ice, I mean, as you stay awake for longer periods of time, you need more and more ice to stay awake. And after you've been awake for four or five days, you're just trying to keep yourself awake because, you know, if you go to sleep, the come down is coming. What's that like? It's like hell on earth. I was using meth to escape all these problems and, and as soon as I began to come down, those problems magnified tenfold and I, I didn't feel, I often didn't feel that life was worth living. I was in my bedroom, I was, I was with a friend, uh, I was in a bad way, I'd been awake for a long time, but I knew I I hadn't been to sleep since Tuesday, it was now Thursday. And speaking to my mate, I realised that it was, it was last Tuesday that I hadn't been to sleep, not the Tuesday gone, so it, it had been at least ten days. I was, I'd taken about 40 or 50 Valium over the course of the day to try and come down and, and soften the come down. Some friends up the road had been barbecuing. They wanted to come around. Um, they needed somewhere they, they could smoke and they wanted to buy a bit off me. And I, I, I advised them not to come around. I wasn't in a good way and I, I couldn't deal with anyone in that state. They came around anyway. The state I was in, it wasn't a good idea for me to mix with... Uh, drinkers who who can often be loud and and obnoxious, and uh, they came with sausages and and uh, they bought the meat cleaver down that they'd been using down at their barbecue. And their presence kind of angered me a bit, and I, I'm not entirely sure what happened next. I, the next thing I knew i was I was running around the streets with a meat cleaver looking for someone who wasn't there.
1: Glenn Caldwell remembered the cleaver was a machete.
3: The next thing I knew i was I was uh, balled up against the wall of a shopping centre car park. Uh, there was a red dot on my chest. There were four or five police officers standing in front of me. One of them had a, a German shepherd. One of them asked me if I had a weapon. I said, yeah, I've got a meat cleaver right here. And I had it stashed down the waistband of my tracksuit pants and went to get it out to give it to him. And as I moved to do that, they threatened to tase me and threatened to let the dog go. And I realised the the gravity of the situation that I was in. And I was going back to jail. Yeah, I think I was back in Rangeview uh, for another week or so. Uh, I was released to my father's care. I think I was out for nine days, and I don't think I slept for that nine days that I was out.
1: You went back on the ice
3: then, Yeah, immediately, yeah. Well, there was a situation. So when I was living at his house, uh, this would have been mid-2010, he had a girlfriend at the time who was into all sorts of stuff, and... One day I found a box of syringes in his room. The syringes were clean. A few weeks later I went back into his room and the box of syringes were dirty and I confronted him about the syringes and and he turned around and tried to blame it on me. And that was heart-wrenching. I mean, this person that I I idolised and I looked up to and was someone who I considered my only solid foundation to help me navigate this world I thought was just as bad as I was.
1: Rick suggests that any drugs at his house belong to his then-girlfriend.
3: And then a few weeks later, I think I'd I'd been out on a bender for seven or eight days, and I came home and um, stole some money off Dad. And um, he called the police and the police arrested me, and the next day we went through the the usual ordeal in court and bail came up, and uh, nine or ten times we'd been through the same process, And, and often my parents signed the bail or with strict conditions, and this time Dad said that he wasn't going to sign the bail and that he was cutting me loose. And initially I thought that was because of what the, the words that we'd had and what had happened between us, and I failed to realise that it was mostly of my own doing, but I was also frightened of what I'd found and terribly angry as well. I felt betrayed that he was preaching to me these these ideals and and prescriptions of how I how I was to get better and to fix myself and to and to rebuild my life and and I thought that he was a cowardly hypocrite when I found all these things and it made me terribly angry and I didn't speak to him for a few years after that
2: The difference with ice is people can use ice mums taking kids to school you know It used to be like Valium was mother's little helper because she's zone out, right? Mm. And like now it's like, you know, what's going to get me through the day? You know, there are very few drugs you can take and go to work. Yeah. Have you tried it? Can I ask, have you tried it? Um, I've taken speed. I mean, you know, it's the same thing as far as I can see.
1: While this was all going on, Karen had continued to seek a solution in the justice system. She found it in Western Australia's Drug Court Program, which aims to break the cycle of drug abuse by using the constant threat of imprisonment.
4: So the Drug Court Program meant that I had to go to court every two weeks, that he had compulsory drug testing every week. And if he messed up, if he used drugs, they threw him back into range view for punishment. If he did anything like hit me or do anything like that, I called them. He could be locked up again. So it took all the parenting away from me. The court was in charge of him and uh, the program was only supposed to be three months, I think. They allowed me to extend it for the seven months because we were doing well. Tom also recognised... He said to me, I need some boundaries and rules, Mum. I can't stop.
1: This was the turning point in Tom's story, even though there were still hard
3: times ahead. I mean, there comes a point in every drug user's career, um, where using drugs isn't fun anymore, it's just an act of compulsion. And I wanted to change, but I, I didn't have the fortitude or, or the resilience to be able to to fulfil that. And after one slip up, uh, I was on the drug court program, I was getting urine tested three or four times a week, um, and I'd stayed awake for three or four days, I had a drug test coming up, I knew I'd failed it. Um, I thought I'd failed my last chance and I thought it'd be easier to give up on life rather than to get clean. It was all, all too hard, I felt, in my fragile state. So I tried to hang myself.
4: He was being difficult, being nasty, can't remember, argumentative, something along those lines. And anyway, he just left the table and and went off to his room.
3: I was uh, in the garage. Um, I hung myself from... It's the beam of the uh, of the garage.
4: Um, anyway, I'm calling out to him, Tom. Tom, open the door. Open the door, Tom. Open the door. Open the door, and he wouldn't open the door.
3: Kicked the chair away.
4: I kicked the door in, and as I kicked the door in, he kicked the chair away. There's a noose hanging from the rafters of my garage, and he kicked the chair away. So he's 80 kilos, and I'm 50. And um, I was trying to support his weight. I was trying to lift him up to loosen it up. They had the door open. I was screaming at my kids. They're all standing in the hallway, just, you know, petrified, just standing there staring. And I'm screaming at them, get the scissors, get the scissors, get the scissors, get the scissors, you know, because I have a really big pair of scissors in my drawer. None of them could move. And I'm just, please, 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 get the scissors, get the scissors, get the scissors. I kept going. I knew I couldn't support his weight. Uh, Fortunately, the whole... Rafters fell in.
3: And the beam, the beam snapped under my weight and I found myself on the floor.
4: He came to the ground. Uh, he would have died.
1: Tom's younger siblings called their father, who in
2: turn called the police. And when I say my mother was crazy, that's the kind of stuff that she'd do. So, I mean, I was raised in an environment where I knew what people did to manipulate a situation. You want to manipulate me? Have a crap. I'm not playing that game now. Yeah.
4: So anyway, the police arrived, Tom bolted, ran out the back door, jumped the back fence and was gone and disappeared for a few days. I didn't know where he was, what he was doing. Through
1: all this, Rick believed that ice was a phase that Tom would emerge from when he
2: was ready. I knew I couldn't stop him doing it. Always knew I couldn't stop him doing it. It was a question of being there for when he hit the bottom. He was in a hole and all of us standing over the hole with it outstretched hands trying to help him out. That wasn't gonna help him. He's just gonna slap us away and tell us to piss off.
1: Somewhere in the depths of these moments, Tom rediscovered his will to live. It was strong enough to break ice's hold on him, but it was not going to be easy.
4: I mean, there were many occasions where, in the middle of the night, he'd be looking out the curtains you know, there's someone out there, Mum. There's someone out there. There's someone out there. No, Tom, there's no one out there. There's no one out Yes, Mum. Yes, Mum. There's someone out there. There's someone out there. You know, he'd call the police at two o'clock in the morning, say that our house was being invaded. You know, I'd be fast asleep. Cops would arrive with dogs, sniffer dogs, a whole lot. And I'm like, oh, it's okay. It's, uh, you know, it's fine. There's no one in my house. The psychosis was terrible.
1: If there was one event that helped Tom close the door on his past, it happened in May 2012. He had two older friends, both ICE users. They were buying meth from a guy named David Houston in East Fremantle and one of Tom's mates had formed the view that Houston was going to harm his own girlfriend and unborn baby. He decided the only way to save her and the baby was to murder Houston. So he strangled him with an electric cable before the pair beat their victim to death.
3: I got a call. I realised that something serious had happened and my mates wanted my help. I considered them to be like elder brothers and I, I felt compelled to help. So I, I agreed, I waited for them to arrive at my house. I got the call around midnight. I waited up until around 4am and, and they never arrived. Tom's mates and Houston's girlfriend all got
1: life sentences for this act of drug fueled insanity. It could have been Tom's fate too.
3: A few weeks before that murder, I would got my driver's licence. I remember I went down to the southwest of WA. I'd started to get back into surfing. Surfing was something I always really enjoyed. We sort of reached a, a turn off, and so I'd later found out that that was where and had driven down to bury the body. And um, we uh, kept driving. I, I drove past that and, and, and went down south and, and had a great weekend. I mean, it's, it, it was symbolic of this fork in the road that I'd reached. Down that path, down that road was a dead corpse and and ahead was a, a weekend away. And perhaps that's just my character. I've always been a, a quite a, a willful person and intent on doing whatever I set out to do, whether that's self-destruction or, or something positive and, and worthwhile. I had a dream that I died once and I looked it up, what it meant. I, it said it was symbolic of a, a rebirth, you know, of breaking away from this uh, a killing off of, of old character and the emergence of, of a new one.
2: You know, and Tom was very fortunate because he was very bright. I mean, he didn't go to school basically in high school, but he still, he went back in year 12 when he got straight A's. You know, it's just, it's ridiculous. It's unfair.
4: I saw a very strong character in that point in time who was actually able to pick himself up and go, you know what, this is not the end of the world. You know, like, you know, OK, tomorrow's a new day. I'm going to try again tomorrow he
1: rekindled his relationship with his grandfather and sought refuge at Ian's home to study.
0: I mean, he can come here, sit here, do his own thing, and I can be painting. That's solid communication. He doesn't have to say anything. Just being in the presence of each other is all that matters. This, again, this is about the spaces. You know, I accept Tom, who he is, and Tom, I'm sure, accepts me as, as I am. But what is working are the spaces between us.
3: Grandad taught me to cook. At the time, I'd, to remove myself from the world of drugs, I began to take an interest in in sport. Sport was something that I enjoyed when I was younger, and I, I began to box. And with that interest in sport, there also came an interest in health and restoring my health and the importance of, of health and well-being, and cooking is obviously a big part of that. Granddad and I began began to cook together. Because what were you doing when you are
1: full on, on the gear? I mean, what were you eating then? What, what, what did maybe. dinner time look like? Maybe maybe have
3: a choc milk once every three days or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. Didn't eat. I wouldn't yeah. eat. I think when I was at my worst point, I would have weighed about 55 kilos. What are you now? Uh, 80. So I was the same height, but nah, 20, okay. 25 kilos lighter. Uh, I was looking for ways to fill that that void that drugs left. They rob you of joy as well. I mean, after this emotional rollercoaster, these huge highs and the lowest of lows, it's hard to live on a steady plateau again. And it took a long time for me to be able to relearn, to enjoy the simple pleasures of life and and to rediscover that joy. The first thing for me was the gym and and strenuous physical exercise, you know, going to boxing four or five six times a week and, and that became a drug in itself. You know, after you exercise for a couple of hours, you, you, get, a, you get a kick of You're endorphins. High.
1: Tom travelled to Europe and Morocco and rediscovered his curiosity about life and his purpose for being.
3: Yeah, I mean, while I was away in Morocco, I discovered writing and I discovered photography and I discovered a way in which I was able to express myself and all these things that I, would, I was feeling that I'd, I'd kept bottled up inside and had and caused me a great deal of of grief over the years. I enrolled for university in a journalism course.
1: In 2016, Tom was named Western Australia's Young Journalist of the Year. He's won grants to make short films and he's writing a book about the experiences of his youth
3: and he visits schools to share his story. I didn't think I'd survive to see 21. I'm surprised I'm I'm still here.
0: Why why do young people, why do most people just give up and want to end their lives? I don't know. Because they they haven't discovered the passion of being alive. As Joseph Campbell says, there's no meaning to life. There's no meaning to life. What's the meaning of a flower in the desert? The real meaning of life is trying to find the experience of being alive. In other words, the journey. Young people need to understand that. They need to, to find the passion of being alive.
3: There's times where I think about it a lot more than others. I mean, even over these last few days, it's definitely something that's begun to play on my mind a lot more. That's something that I may carry with me forever. That's perhaps one of the emotional scars of, of what I've done. I quite often still think about injecting drugs, but I've built my life up now to a stage where it's not worth throwing it away for a fleeting moment of, of, of ecstasy
1: In the end, Rick and Karen's very different approaches to dealing with Tom or not dealing with Tom both worked to some extent each in their own way Perhaps they should give each other and themselves more credit for getting through this ordeal with their son still alive What's left now is to resolve the lingering spaces between their family members
0: But I still believe there was a lot of chaos that Tom was going through all through that time, because his parents had issues that they needed to deal with. They all had baggage they needed to unload. Which you felt partly responsible for as well. Yes, I mean, that's, yes. I mean, but it's, and and we all have baggage, but until we are aware of it, we can't deal with it. That's why age is such an amazing thing. I, I just treasure the past because I realise all that's made me who I am.
1: The process of talking about this period has been cathartic for the D'Souza family. I hear that Tom and Rick will be travelling to Singapore for the opening of Ian's exhibition. A few years ago, this would have been unlikely, but the spaces between them are being bridged and new insights are possible.
2: The one true cost of drugs is the loss of joy. Allow people to understand that doing this now is going to rob you of future joy. And I don't know why that is, but it does. It's, it's a difficulty in experiencing joy subsequently. And I, I don't know what that's about, yeah, whether it's the live now, pay later kind of thing.
4: Things look good. Things look good. Um, Tom's slowly working through it and getting his life back together and, and trying to rebuild the relationships with his siblings and I think to some extent his parents. Um, I don't hold grudges and, you know, people make mistakes and if they're sorry, if they truly are remorseful, then forgiveness, you move on.
3: When Adam flew over from Melbourne, it seemed cut and dry. Boy and ice, parents, problems at school, drugs. Initially, I think Adam had only a vague understanding of the many moving parts to this complex family drama. I did too. I sat in on interviews with my family and listened to their unfiltered recollections of my darkest years. It was difficult to endure. Emotions flared. I began to question my own ambitions. Is it worth reliving all this pain and trauma? I asked myself. I found the answer. This is about giving back. My story is a unique opportunity to inform, inspire, and create a better understanding of a social and health problem that many find too frightening to think about. The interviews also facilitated difficult family conversations that ensued. In the presence of a mediator, I was able to understand the problem from an outsider's perspective. It also made me realise that while others have forgiven me, I've struggled to forgive myself. That realisation has led me to steps of action. It's also helped to clarify what's important to me and the methods I use in dealing with this. It's taken years of roiling contemplation to understand why this happened, but I'm becoming comfortable with it now. I'm discovering the power of vulnerability. This has been another step on that journey of learning.
1: The producer was Sarah Grinberg. Mixing, editing, and theme music by Matt Nikolich. Executive producer Grant Totte. This has been a real crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand.
4: Listener.